starting <clears throat> we're just starting this is part of our uh, getting to know you series we're back right? is like uh this is all happening at the same time and it's very much not happening at the same time no because we're starting from scratch in the hot hot heat of portland oregon yeah crack those beers kids if you got them mm. all right everybody thank you uh for tuning in all three of you to independent animation with trevor and rob i'm trevor stewart i'm rob shaw um we think it was the first episode we sat down and did a deep dive uh, with Mr. Rob Shaw and talked about his uh, entree into the uh, industry and what his college experience was like and his first couple jobs that led up to him being a big, huge director um, here in Portland. But now the tables have turned. Oh, shit. Boy, now, but I have a question for you. Trevor's right in the hot seat. Were you, were you shooting a music video over the weekend? I was, yeah. It was, it was another... Uh, yeah, it's a Aesop rock. It's right? Aesop and um, and Tobacco together on an album. It's was gonna that, be good. Is it, uh, was that a set or was that a house? Was that an actual like practical? Oh, somebody's house. Yeah, oh, yeah, it was. yeah. Oh, okay. Because I was like, yeah. damn, how much money do you have for that set dresser? No. It looked good, dude. It was like, <laughs> it was like the Roseanne <laughs> bar set, dude. Was that was. Like, uh, that's actually funny. Uh, um, Jade was my uh, art director, and she, Jade Harris, and she. Uh, double check that name that I got the name right <clears throat> after Jade, the podcast. Jade Harris. Um, she uh, she had said when I told her what I wanted, she was like, "Oh yeah, I love making the the uh, Roseanne set." So it's like it's like her even in her head, it's like it's already a thing. Like she's got a ton of the parts and pieces, and the the woman's basement that we shot at um, is the reason we shot there was because it looks like it's got oh, really? caught in a time. You machine. guys use the the Roseanne word too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Well, that red, uh, yeah, it came off, uh, came off very clear. Jade Harris. Jade Harris. Yeah. Uh, everybody can find uh, Jade Harris's work at www.jade-harris.com. I haven't worked with Jade, but uh, that's good times. Um, so yeah, so the tides have turned. Um, this might be our third podcast. Might be our second. Mm -hmm. Don't know the rotation, but um, uh, had a great time talking to you last time digging in deep uh about philly which i know jack shit about um the music scene which i didn't know jack shit about i didn't know that you went to cal art or that you uh, applied to cal arts mm -hmm. didn't know that you almost were standing at the crossroad between going to the simpsons or no more going don't touch to the table oh shit that's right. <laughs> everybody hear that yeah we gotta stop touching uh, okay so my turn yeah so trevor stewart trevor stewart uh rock star Animation producer, Booyah. rainmaker of incredible indie animation projects. How do you get there? How does that? That seems like an even weirder path than, than animation director. Side? Yeah, well, I don't know. If I start now and work my way backwards, I could describe how fucking hot I am because there's no air conditioning yeah, yeah. in here. It's and a little I'm warm, wearing, and I'm wearing like a prison like denim coat <laughs> over my v-neck um you know that's a really good question i think um um i i think everybody starts out wanting to be a creative like yeah. especially like in your teenage years you know mom and dad get you a video camera for christmas and you start making like lego animations mm -hmm. and stuff or you make live action stuff um and when i went to i went to the academy of art in san francisco thinking that i would um i would lead the creative charge but I had noticed the the short films that I made prior to college, I would my instincts were meant more toward being the den mother or like the shoring up of resources mm -hmm. or pulling a con man job on live sets that we would steal when we didn't have permits for. Mm -hmm. it. And I was mm -hmm. like, oh shit, I can like I can talk to a police officer, or I can talk to like a restaurant manager and right. get in under pressure without having any permission. And I felt like uh, being in the middle of a tornado, but being able to keep a cool head, you know mm -hmm, what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. like, and be, I say con man just for the word confidence, but like be uh, just to be, uh, uh, I guess I like being at the center of the storm, uh -huh. you know? And um, that carried out. I think I realized at one point 
that a I have no fucking taste whatsoever, hmm. and that that's in not film true. School, but okay. Well, as a producer, I have taste. Uh-huh. Like this is where this was how I unlocked my career as a producer was I realized that I have no business in storytelling and I have no business in um um in what my creative thoughts are. But what I did make my business was in speculating talent Mm -hmm. in from directors to animators to actors or voice talent or, you know, even like shitty stuff like compositors, no offense, compositors, (laughs) Uh, but you know what I'm saying? Like even like the sexless stuff, like compositing or like, or rigging and that sort of thing that for me, understanding my role in, in the, in the film business and in, in animation really began uh, is when I started to recognize the difference between people who were psychotically passionate and 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 pathological about their career mm-hmm. versus someone who kind of just clocked in and clocked out. Yeah, yeah. And the moment I started, because I'm also totally pathological mm-hmm. in my career, I'm, I'm basically a sociopath. I live and breathe um, producing, mm-hmm. and I think that in this industry. Which I, you know, I think it has a bad rap. Entertainment in general has a bad rap for people like having, you know, bizarre attitudes. But I feel like every project you make, either short or long, is a fucking nightmare because you are sprinting at a, uh, 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 at a marathon length. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And it, it takes a certain type of, of, uh, personality to be able to survive all the no's that you get. Yeah. And that, you know, you make a short film, say that takes a month out of your life or maybe even three months out of your life make a feature film takes three to five years out of your life. And over the course of those months or years, you are, you are handed so many pink slips and so many no's yeah. that like you kind of have to be crazy in order to be like, and those timelines, going. those timelines, I just want to mention those were live action timelines. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah we're yeah, not yeah. talking about a, a one to three month short oh, animation short, film. No, no, no. Um, let me, let me just, uh, cause I do want to get into the history, but I do, I feel like we should pull back the curtain a little bit on, animation producing i think that it's a one i i think that animation producing is actually like actually any producing um it's can be a multitude of things there's actually like when you say i'm a producer that can mean very distinct different jobs you know uh there's there's kind of like the more line producery side of things there's the more ep side of things and then there's the more kind of like Hollywood EP side of things, you know, like, yeah, and I all think, of those things get called producer. Yeah. But let me ask you, I'm just going to load this question up and I'm load, not going to let you talk yet. Load it up. Babe, load so it. I, I remember being on the other end of, of the industry and not, uh, you know, I, I think everyone has this kind of like, at least in their heads, this ro- clear, if not weirdly romantic view of what directing is. Right. But I think, Producing before I started, I always thought of producing as, uh, oh, that's the, oh, they're the money guys. Right, right, right. You know, and, and that, and that's not really true. I'd love for you to just kind of walk people through what, in, in, not what every animation producer is, but when you're producing animation, what is that? You know what? Dude, that's a really good question because, my family members don't even know what I do. Mm-hmm. Like my ex-wife didn't even really know what I did. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like you use the term producer. And like you said, people think like, oh, you walk around with a suitcase full of money or maybe you're the one that signs the paychecks. Yeah. Um, I don't I use the word den mother a lot mm-hmm. because it's like uh, you're the den mother. You, you've got, you know, a dozen people you have to look after. You have to keep them alive. You um, have to. Uh, find the resources and then guard the resources mm-hmm. and then distribute the resources among 12 people all fighting for the resources. Mm-hmm. So you, um, you're like the central spoke in, um, uh, this like, you're like the central nervous system that keeps a giant system working like a giant organism. So for me, um, the, my entree into the industry, and I would highly advise anybody who wants to be a producer, is suck it up and be a producer's assistant. Mm-hmm. Like, and you can use any term you want. You can say secretary, administrative assistant, admin. Sometimes if you get a really cool producer, they'll give you the title of coordinator, mm-hmm. even though really you're just buying, you know, you're getting them sandwiches. And right. Shit. Um, but I got a front row seat early in my career. Mm-hmm. I was in college and ah, you know what? 
I'm just going to say this. It's not very ethical, but um, uh, I had an internship while I was in film school in Los Angeles. And the internship, there was a job opportunity at a production company in Beverly Hills. And um, you had to have your degree. And I do have to say that I took a risk and I lied to him and I told him I had my degree um, because I wanted to get into the, you know, I, I wanted a, a job in the, this successful production company. So I shifted all my classes to evening classes in college mm-hmm. for two years, um, worked in Beverly Hills at this production company and then went to school at night. That part's rad. Don't feel great about being unethical about lying, but I was a secretary to two huge movie producers. Um, I'll just drop their names, Jennifer Gibgott and uh, Andrew Panay. And even though, just like Karate Kid, right? Ralph Macchio's like, you got me waxing your car, man. Yeah. You got me painting your fence. And little did he know, he was actually learning the fundamentals of, of Okinawan karate or whatever mm-hmm. the fuck they were learning in mm-hmm. the show, right? It's the same thing is that um, as an assistant, it was so hard. It was tough. Like I had cell phones thrown at me. I had I mean, the verbal abuse was unfucking believable. I think that might be a little different in the animation world because that was live action where I started. I think it also may be starting to be different now than it was. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> like, I don't I, I feel I, like we're I feel like things are moving towards a more of uh, just in, in workforces yeah. in general towards a like a healthier atmosphere yeah or, or just yeah a a a uh hopefully a a better quality of life aspect yeah. to things uh but then also just like uh there's just people are not willing to unless the unless the uh pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is really really exciting and worth it people aren't willing to like take yeah. the those kind of beatings you know. I wonder if maybe I'm the last of I should ask some of the younger like assistants and young mm-hmm. Hollywood executives now like what their experience has been because there's literature to that effect when I was when I was in the business books would come out like one of them was called like you'll never eat lunch in this town again yeah um one of the, another book is called you've never ate lunch in this town to begin with and it just it's like a swimming with shark scenario um but that instilled in me the muscle, muscle memory of of what it takes to be a successful producer. And I got to see that communication was number one communication yeah. right out of the gate. Doesn't matter if you have taste, doesn't matter if you know how to interpret a screenplay, doesn't matter if you have contacts, if you can't communicate clearly via email, via text or verbally, um, uh, it put you at a huge disadvantage as a producer. So I picked that up. And while I was in Hollywood, I worked for like five or six different producers, all of them pretty successful, you know, to varying degrees and got to see a really well-rounded, um, you got to see how different producers achieve the same goal, which mm-hmm. is getting their pictures made. Um, and same deal is uh, even though I moved up in Hollywood and I was an executive and I was making decisions about story and I was hiring writers and I was working, incubating writers, young writers and um, and getting them set up for pitches and stuff like that. Um, when I when my wife and I at the time decided to move to Portland, Oregon to raise a family, I heard about the small studio called Leica. And I knew that Henry Selleck um, was working on a picture up here. And um, I, I went backwards in my career. So I knew that you, there was no live action filmmaking happening in Portland. Mm-hmm. And if it did, it was like a, a couple days of live action shooting. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It wasn't, you, it's not a sustainable business. And um, so I bit the bullet and returned to being an assistant when I moved to Portland, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It fucking sucked. I will say that dude <laughs> to be, uh, uh, to, to be an executive and making decisions and kind of like, you know, kind of a little, a little bit of power, a little tiny bit, mm-hmm. um, to going back to being a secretary was like super humbling. Sure. But I was entering into an anim- into, into an industry. I didn't know a fucking thing about it. It was like yeah. animation. I'm like, what the fuck? Animation. This is a redheaded stepchild of entertainment. Yeah, you were easy too. You just hit the animation button. It's simple. Easy. Simple. simple. Yeah. Anybody can do it. Yeah. You were also though. Uh, you were also building uh, relationships with uh, directors specifically. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that yeah. that's another. That's like part of. Um, that's part of producing. You know, part of a, a big part of it in my experience is. You know, the, the producers that I've seen that, that work out, it's like they, 
they like a 24 hour fitness. Yes. Oh, yeah. The ones with the best abs are the ones that, uh, you know, connect with directors, make relationships with directors whose work they believe in. And, uh, those are the directors that they work with down the line. And it almost doesn't matter if you come in there as an assistant or whatever. Right, it's, right. it's more about showing that director that you're the guy that can facilitate this thing. I mean, I think one thing that's important to point out is that this, this podcast is called indie animation, which animation in general and production in general never has enough money. There's never enough money to do the job. Yeah. It's okay. always a stretch. I'll just say, I, I was on the Gus Van Zant project in December. Only project in my 18 year career. Was there more money than was needed? It was for that Super Bowl commercial. I was going to say that was a commercial too. That was not. I'm a, just going to say that wasn't a Gus film because no, a Gus no. film's not going to have no, enough no, money. No, no, it's like a Wes no, Anderson it, film. Yeah. yeah, there's so there's never enough money to get the thing done. There's just there's just enough to barely eke by, and yeah. a big. I think that's one of the one of the exciting aspects for uh, indie producers, and I think that this is where it maybe differs a little bit from from blockbuster producers is that, uh, indie producers are, it's almost like you're facilitating the job getting done. And that's a big, that's like, that's like a big piece of the puzzle. That's the thing you take home as like satisfaction is that like, okay, yeah, this, there was some creative there, whether it was the writer or the director that had a vision for how this thing should mm-hmm. be. And they're, they're making a bunch of creative decisions and they're, and they're putting things together creatively. But without me getting that truck for whatever rate Absolutely. and figuring out this way to actually get some lights, blah, blah, whatever the thing is, I'm using really yeah. terrible examples because I'm not a producer, but, but I think I hear you. And I mean, I look at it a, a really simple way that I've, I've talked with folks about this is the, like the right brain, left brain kind of division uh-huh. is that uh, I think producing is half of the relationship and directing is the other half. If you as a director are worried about when the grip truck is arriving, it's not the best use of your time. And if I'm sitting there thinking about, you know, I wonder what color the protagonist shirt should be. That's not the best use of my time. Yeah. So from an efficiency point of view. But I'll go one. I'm going to one step further. You get get is me. that like just as you were saying, like I'm you were saying, like, you're not the guy to make the decision on the color. shirt. Yeah. I'm not the guy to figure out how to get that porta potty there on time. That's Absolutely. not my skill. No, but the moment but you see that in early you see that in film school all the time. Right. It's like. You know, a lot of people wear different hats and the smaller the production, people wear different hats. But the the most successful production companies and I guess the metric of success is, you know, is it's kind of subjective. But you look at Imagine Entertainment, you get Ron Howard, who has I mean, he he fucked up solo. Sorry, guys. Um, but you take Ron Howard and you take Brian Grazer. You got a director and you got a producer. They have two very different roles and they have been running this production company out of, I think, Universal Studios since Jesus was a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, it's given birth to all kinds of great stuff from Apollo 13 to, I think, I think it was, was it, it wasn't Backdraft that he did. I think it was like, it might be Backdraft. Did he do Backdraft? I, I think, think it did the new, the newspaper one too. Whatever that Newsies? Was. No, With not Christian Newsies. Bale? Not Newsies. Uh, no, like, uh, 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 uh. The one about the, like the, it was more like a, you know, a, the one with Tom Hanks. Uh, now I don't Spielberg even remember. Anyway, remember. but, um, Arrested Development. Arrested Development. There you go. But holding aside, wait, didn't he just do the voice of Arrested Development? No, no, no. That's his thing. Uh, no. I mean, it's a lot of people's thing, but I think it's, it's, it's Imagine Entertainment for sure. Oh, it's Imagine. Oh yeah, exactly. Produced by Imagine. Sorry. So, um, so going back to like what you were saying is, and working with directors, like, I was very lucky because my first role in animation was working with Henry Selleck. So it was like, I didn't have a huge amount of animation experience prior to that. I had a large amount of, you know, Hollywood experience, worked with a bunch of movie stars and fucking shit. But in terms of animation, 830 in the morning, I'm in a meeting with Henry Selleck every day. So I got to see how fucking vastly different animation was from live action. Yeah. And you also got to see something done in a way where you you had confidence that like, you know, whether whether you liked or not what was going on it, this this is the way things are done My. you know sometimes you work on sometimes you work on things where you're like it's obvious you're looking around and you're like this is not how things are done i've i've been on those productions <laughs> too man but yeah and, but here's yeah. one here's one where it's very clear that like like 
as long as he's not railing against this as like this process that we're in right now is crazy, this is how things are done. Yeah. And, and so I was very lucky. Okay. That's the other thing, dude, I got to say is luck. Mm-hmm. I've had a great career, right? I've had worked on some really great stuff and worked with some really great people. And there's a lot of, I have to say, like a lot of it has to do with luck. Because mm-hmm. had I moved to Portland, had Leica not been, you know, so welcoming and welcomed me into their fold. I don't know what the fuck I'd be doing, dude. Making cable access, yeah. You know what I'm saying? I don't, yeah. I don't fucking know. Um, but, but you, you also hustle to put yourself in the way of luck as much as possible, so that I think that's also it too. When yeah, there's when luck, wanna, you, yeah. you, you at least up the odds. You buy yeah. a lot of lottery tickets, so Ex- that absolutely. At least dude, if you're not gonna, uh, you know, maybe you don't win, but at least you're giving yourself as many shots as you can. Yeah, and I think that's part of producing too. Is like, um, is playing the numbers and making sure that. Um, there's always room in my oven to put something to be cooking in. Do mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Because like even you and I, we've worked on a lot of projects together. Not every project sells, mm-hmm. and um, you got to be ready to throw something else in that oven if that project doesn't sell. And right. I think that that, um, uh, I think hustling is part of it. Mm-hmm. So um, can I throw on another one? Oh, fuck yeah! For this is this is a is very it, like, is it a metaphor? No, no, no. This is just a very very Trevor. Specific ingredient. It's an ingredient that I've seen around, but I think every a bunch of different producers. This is the same as every other big role in this machine. Is that there's a thousand different ways to do things. There's a thousand different Absolutely. type of personalities that work. So you don't meet one personality and you're like, oh, yeah, that's how you do this. You know, like like I can speak from directors that there's there's directors who. Uh, there's me who's very chatty and very pre-production-y. There's very kind of editorial minded directors who are not good communicators. They still, they, they still are great directors and it, they've just got different methods. There's not one recipe here, but I'll say a very important ingredient to the Trevor recipe is enthusiasm, Ooh. which is that I, I think that you, uh, you know, it's probably a combination of you trying not to attach yourself to things that you can't be enthusiastic about, um, but fostering your enthusiasm so that you can get people excited about things that you're talking about and that you're working on. And it's an important part of, especially in this indie thing where like so much of this is like, all right, we need to build a dream team and we don't necessarily have the money and the resources to just build that team the way we'd like to. Right, right, and, right. And we were going to be asking people to contribute more than they're getting paid for. And um, we're going to be, uh, you know, I mean, I think that we do it, I think in Portland in general, it's a little bit more honest and open than it's been in some of my other experiences and other places about yeah. that kind of thing. So I don't think it's the same kind of taking advantage kind of thing, but I think Indian general means, uh, you you do not you have very limited resources right. and so sometimes that either pans out in people uh taking a little bit less or doing a little bit more or a little bit of both and i think that a part of that is that energy that that you know being excited about the project is part of that it's very hard to do it when people are feeling shitty about the project yeah I, you know <laughs> it's hard because but but the world still exists so there's uh, uh, with that with that methodology even at the top of or the, with that kind of philosophy of like a producer not having enthusiasm and leading with fear instead of leading with um with enth- enthusiasm and positivity i've been in i would say I'm enthusiastic, one, just to mask my incompetence because I'm a horrible line producer. <laughs> I'm a really great development producer and I'm a really good rainmaker and I've got contacts and I love I love being able to like fit different pieces together. Um, but I'm a horribly unorganized motherfucker. But the vast majority of my experience, I have to be honest, is, uh, you know, in working in animation from a producing point of view, management hasn't been enthusiastic. It's almost as if it's like a normal job. And like, I'm still beside myself to this day. I'm an old man, right? I'm mm-hmm. 40 years old. Mm-hmm. And I still can't fucking believe I get paid to to do what I do. You yeah. know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, to make totally. drawings or, yeah. to, or to fucking call a publisher and right. be like, hey, can I have the motion picture right. rights to this book? Or yeah. call an author or find an unknown artist who, you know, posts on Behance or posts on somewhere and just be like, hey, kid, 
do you want a production design for a major motion picture? You know what I'm saying? Like, there are so many things to be excited about with this industry that I still can't, for the life of me, believe. I think it's bad for business too, man. Yeah. To like create an environment where we could all we could all go into other industries where we can make money and selling real estate or whatever and have it be sexless and boring and 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 fucking homogenized. Um, and yeah, like our, our our projects get stressful and there's not a lot of resources. But I, as a 40 year old guy, I there's still that seven year old in me who is picking up a camera for the first time and seeing the magic of animating a G.I. Joe. The first time you play it back at 12 frames a second yeah. or, like, yeah, whatever, yeah. or one frame holding for seven uh-huh. seconds because you couldn't hit the, the off button fast enough. Um but I was really intrigued by that. And going back to like my early years, even before before film school and realizing that I could keep my head when the fucking house is on fire and realizing that it didn't affect me. I didn't feel that sense of panic mm-hmm. that I, I that I, inversely, I actually felt a sense of duty when shit goes down. And I was like, whoa, this kind of surprised me. I was like, that's kind of cool. Maybe yeah, yeah. kind of unique. Thank you for listening to Indie Animation with Trevor and Rob. For those of you listening through Apple Podcast, you can do us a favor. And it doesn't involve you sending us money. It involves you scrolling down and leaving us a review. And if you like us, giving us five stars. This helps grow our base and get our message out there. We started this podcast because this is what we wanted when we were in college. And we wanted to know how the fuck to get out of our parents' basement. And I'm, you know, and one of these days we're going to get out. Oh, yeah, that's right. We yeah. should probably get caveat. We're, We're still here. We're on the way out yeah. of the parents, my mom's basement right now. And back to the show. Um, well, let's go. Let's go back there a little bit. So let's uh, I, like I'm very curious, like, like you pointed out before. We've known each other for years. We work with each other for years. Um, but we are and we, you know, relate without effort. But I'm I'm very curious about little Trevor's world. Because okay. we talked a little bit about Little Robbie's world. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's uh, and and Philly and the Pacific Northwest are very different places. Yeah. Um, you grew up here. Mm-hmm. So I grew up at Stone's Throw from where Leica's sound stage is now. I grew up in the suburbs. Um, there, uh, I grew up in the suburbs. I grew up relatively poor. So the advantage that gave me was um, I didn't live on. The right side of the tracks, as it were, where it basically was just like a fuck ton of of white suburban families. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm Caucasian, whatever. I don't know what my heritage is. Mm-hmm. I say white trash because I, mm-hmm. I honestly, I just, I don't know. And it hasn't been important to my family to be like, we're Scottish and we're like, right. whatever. So that, so growing up, uh, I felt like I grew up with, um, in the margins anyway, right out of the gate, not a lot of money. Lived in a, you know, kind of a poor-ish neighborhood. Um, there was a cultural mix in our neighborhood. It's still the suburbs, so it, was like, wasn't, it wasn't as mixed as, as, like, my neighborhood is now. Well, you say the suburbs, but I'm just, I'm very curious because yeah. I feel like Portland, uh, uh, you know, it, it hasn't always been uh, gentrified to the level yeah. that it is right now. But it's always, it hasn't also been... Um, it's never been that, how do I say this? Cause I know that there have been gangs and there were some rough yeah. parts or some rough times, but still in my head, when I imagine Portland and then when I imagine the suburbs, they're still not as different or divided as I imagine, like, you know, New York and North Jersey or like, right, right. or like Philly and the Philly suburbs or like, I, and I don't know, that might be an illusion, but I imagine it like it's, it's, uh, when you, when you say suburbs, I conjure this image of, you know, the beginning of, uh, Edward Scissorhands and that's not what well, we're I talking mean, about. If you, yeah, if you imagine that, uh, that would be like the right side of the track. So like the jocks and the, 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 the popular kids, the, the, the kids who had money lived in the Edward Scissorhands development uh-huh. and they were like McMansion-y looking things. Uh-huh. Um, we, our neighborhood was still like, you know, post-World War II, but they were like ranch homes. Mm-hmm. They were, um, you know, they're kind of run down. 
there was a criminal element in our neighborhood that was like fertile. It Tre- was it was fertile, son. The Trevor Stewart element, dude. I will tell you this. So, and I, you know, my family was also like my siblings were like criminals. So, like, you know, my <laughs> older brother like got me high when I was like five years old or something. I remember him like getting me high and shoving me in a closet when my father walked in his room. Mm. Not fucking cool. Mm-mm. Not cool. He turned out not to be that great of a guy. Yeah. Uh, but huge criminal element in my neighborhood. Um, but I, but I look back at that and I say, well, I would, I feel like it was a hugely valuable education for me because my personal narrative is, is coming from the margins. Like now I am a privileged white straight male. Yeah. Like I have to say that first and foremost, and I think it's important to say that, um, but growing up disadvantaged, growing up with criminal element in my neighborhood, uh, I saw my first gun, probably my other brother, you know, showed me a gun when I was probably like in third grade or something like that. Mm. I'm not advocating any of this, but I do have to say that like it started to open my eyes immediately of a, the, the richness that lives in the margins. And mm-hmm. you know, you read great novels or even just look at, you know, character studies of great novelists. It's usually people who come from the goddamn margins. Yeah. Like they're making, they're, 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 they're observing this undulating mass of life from the sidelines and providing great commentary. And so that's, that was my early narrative and something happened. And I was always in, in a film and, and watching movies and that sort of thing. But some family friends came over and I've, I've repeated this story in like news articles and or interviews and stuff, but, but I love it to death. Some family friends came over and they said, you know, Trevor, you know, what do you want to be when you, when you grow up? And uh, maybe I was like in fifth grade or something. And I said, you know, I think I want to, I want to move to LA and make movies. And their response was something like, you're not cut out for L.A. or Mm -hmm. L.A. is too much for you or the movie business is not. Oh, and I think these people were from L.A. too. Okay, I was going to say. They shove it up their ass. I was going to say, are these just people from down the street from the trailer two trailers over? These were like some fucking some hoity toity friend. And you know what? And because they were friends with my parents, mm-hmm. they couldn't have been that. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, anyway, so I just remember feeling so stung from adults that I admired. Because, you know, when you're a kid, every adult's like a fucking superhero. Yeah. yeah. Um, these adults look me in the eye and being like, you can't do this. And it stung so fucking bad. But not stung from a point of like me, you know, turning me into a defeatist. It like pissed me off to my fucking core. And I was like, you know what? At that point is when I developed my extreme hatred towards authority. Mm -hmm. Um, And at that point, I had realized, like, you know what? I'm alone in this world. I am fucking I I don't trust adults. I don't trust anybody who's telling me what to do. I'm just going to fucking do what I'm going to do, you know, within reason. That sounds like a really asshole thing to say. But that was that's what kicked it off. And I. Yeah, it's the it's the it's the. It's the uh, it's the punk answer, which is like, it well, is now, like, now I have to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And so you told I me not born, to touch that. Now I got to touch it. Yeah, exactly. I'm not only going to touch <laughs> it, I'm, I'm going to build a monument <laughs> around it. But, you know, had I been born on the other side of the tracks and like started like become a, you know, a warrior for Christ or like embracing religion or became some, you know, like a jock or whatever my life. I don't think I think growing up disadvantaged helped me help that narrative toward like embracing more of like a fuck you don't tell me what to do Mm -hmm. attitude and becoming really independent. And as a producer, um, I mean, I still employ that to this day. Like I still be like, just like you said, you know, a few minutes back, there's a million way, a thousand ways to do something. And when you're a producer, um, you produce a project in the way you know how, because, uh, you assign another producer, uh, to one of your projects they're going to produce it vastly different than I'm going to produce it. Right. It's all a matter of taste. It's a matter of comfort. Yep. It's a matter of, you know, experience. And I realized the my way or the highway totally works when you're a producer. Right. You know what I'm saying? Because right. you're in charge. Like yeah. when you're the producer, you are you are the singularity in terms of structuring the the project. Uh, generally speaking, like structuring the budget, mm-hmm. the allocation of funds. Um so it was an industry where I could be and still can to this day be incredibly punk rock and, and incredibly entrepreneurial because I don't have anyone looking over my shoulder. As long as I deliver a product that is extremely high quality and the the cherry on top is that everyone who's participated has had a great time, then I can be as entrepreneurial as I want. Right. That 
there's nobody underwriting me and there's nobody telling me I can't or can't do anything. And actually those things I are, are semi the, 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 the mark of your success too. You know, like you, like you, you, as a producer, you hang your hat on, uh, this thing got done. Yeah. This thing looks really good. Uh, everyone had a great time. Yeah. Like those are, those are, those are, those are the thing at the end of the day that you're building. Absolutely. And it's like, it's, it's not to say that things aren't like super challenging. You know, I don't know. There's like this philosophy. There's like this, I don't know what you call it. A totem Mm -hmm. fucking, a, a little thing that people say where they're like, you can't choose what happens to you, but you can choose how to respond. I mean, that's kind of like uh-huh. fucking filmmaking, like shit's going to hit the fan, but you can like make it kind of cool. So, yep. um, so that's what I did. I, I, um, I basically flunked out of high school cause I joined a rock and roll band, but I was still making movies. Um, when I was young, growing up in the suburbs, even with the criminal element as like kind of fascinating as that was, um, nobody was reading books around me. Mm-hmm. I ended up picking up books at the age of 14 or 15 and going like, motherfucker, whoa, 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 whoa. So the world is bigger than this. So the world is bigger than going out and vandalizing somebody's house or right. shooting a, a stop sign with a shotgun. Right. I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. That's amazing <laughs> because my expectations were so low. Yeah. Um, that uh, books really unlocked the world to me. Mm-hmm. And that I had read Hemingway. I know Hemingway gets a bad rap, but. Forgive me, I was like fucking 15. I read Hemingway. Um, I can't remember which. I think it might have been. Oh, you know what? It was The Short Happy Life of Francis Mocumber. So it's a, it's a short story. I read that. Mm-hmm. And then I'm sitting in, in high school, ninth grade, 10th grade. And they're talking about the explorers, like the conquistadors mm-hmm. that have come over to North America. And I was fucking sitting there. I don't think I got chills, but it my neurons connected. And I was like, wait a minute. So... The grisly, crazy, overly macho asshole who uh, was one of the characters in the short Happy Life of Francis Mocumber. I realized at that moment, I was like, wait a minute, that character trait is very similar to what they're describing of the type of mentality that the conquistadors Uh had when they came over Uh and they fucking did terrible, awful things when they came to North America. And I realized that literature helped bridge that gap. Had I not read that book... I might, my, I probably wouldn't even be fucking paying attention in class. You know what right. I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. conquistadors, people yeah. came over in a boat and they fucking did terrible things. And you're, you're so far separated from that. But in reading that book, you know, you're fucking reading. It's psychological. You get inside somebody's, you get inside a character's head and suddenly it becomes personal. Mm-hmm. You feel like you know them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just started reading like crazy and reading awful stuff as a teenager, like, you know, uh, Bukowski, mm-hmm. Brett Easton Ellis, shit I shouldn't have been reading, mm-hmm. you know, at that age. Um, uh, or maybe you should. Or maybe I, mean, I should. I don't, I don't know. know. And I can't say. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. It's all. You have different rules for yourself than you have yeah. for your kids. And I think that that's just something you have to. You just accept. It's oh, just I'm so like, strict you know. with my kids. Dude. I'm so strict, man. You know, Holy like what I what God. what you do. Uh, I, 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 I feel the same way about a lot of things where like you can look. There's two ways to look back on a thing where it can be. Uh, maybe it was challenging and had i had the choice i'd have chosen something different but also you're the sum of everything and so if you have any kind of positive feeling about where you're going or what you're made of that's all those things added up so it's also and that's i I should also throw out there that i think um you know i i i there's there's paths from the right side of the track that also equal out to uh great creative work it's a just a different it's a different path access to resources access to like generally the intelligentsia of any country is usually like the ones who have a little bit more money Uh so and i'm also i'm always jealous of of directors that were exposed to uh to just a higher level of art and philosophy at a younger age so that when they made films in film school they're a lot more sophisticated than the garbage that I was making in film school. <laughs> so, that, you know, it's funny because that's an Achilles heel of mine is that I feel terribly insecure. Full disclosure. I dated an executive producer after my divorce. I dated like people tend to do. And uh, I started dating a producer cause I was like, wait a minute, I'm going to find someone who's just as self-absorbed as I yeah. am. <laughs> Turned out not to be a great idea, but she came from, she was very upper class and came from, 
came from resources and she was that person. She could like quote. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. She, like I just yeah. felt like a troglodyte, you yeah. know, compared, compared yeah. to her. Anyway. Yeah. So I hear you. I, not to put down people who are born into privilege. No, no, no. Born you're into saying money. It's just part of my you're narrative. You're talking about your past. I'm and basically that's, a criminal. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a criminal, but right. I was basically. Then, but that how that mentality served producing for you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, it made me a nonconformist. So now, so we've got, so Trevor grows up. Yep. Goes to film school. Yeah. Decides yep. that that uh, that actually the production side of filmmaking mm-hmm. was the right move. Yep. Yeah, because my in- films were terrible. They were fucking. <laughs> they were so horrible that I would get other students to direct my. I would get yeah. directing majors to direct my films, and then the professors would say, "This is a directing class. You should have directed it." And I, I, uh, if you should I remember correctly, I always won the argument because I was like. Hear me out. Yeah. I'm a producing major. Sure, I'm in a directing class, but this is way fucking better because Arthur from South Africa directed this, who's a real guy who actually directed one uh-huh. of the pieces for me. Then if I did it, I was like, you could, I, th- I was like, just step back. Professor. I think you could, I think you could also, but you just call Large Ventrayer into the room and get him to say why that's still directing. I know, right? I mean, <laughs> still you're still directing. controlling the governing yeah, dynamics. Yeah, I mean, I'm, like I said, w- from the directing standpoint, I've seen so many ways of doing it. I've seen so many people that are inept, except for the ability to have an eye for what's good and what's not. Right. Yeah. And surrounding themselves with highly trustable talent. And those people make great movies. Yeah. I, and they, yeah. and they, and they, suck at all the things that I would list as like, this is what directors do and they're terrible at them. And yet they're still great directors. So it's just a billion fucking ways for it to work out. Absolutely. And I, and I think at the end of the day, um, when you trust your instincts, when you just kind of let go and be like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to do this my way. You know, if there's ever any question, try to err on the side of kindness. That's always a good compass, but you should, you know, when you trust your instinct and you do it your way, um, uh, chances are the results are just going to be better. And, mm-hmm. and every way is, mm-hmm. and every way is different. And I, I learned to, you know, here, here's the other secret about me is, um, I am a fucking master at failure, mm-hmm. just a master because I'm constantly <laughs> tilling the soil. I've got, I've uh-huh. always got projects, I'm always moving and shaking. I'm right there and, with you, Trevor. Uh, you know, so, oh yeah, high five, buddy. <laughs> is, um, the, uh, I have learned to develop a relationship with failure. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, I have learned to develop a relationship with recovery from failure. And that took a while. You know what I'm saying? Especially as an adult. I'm still like, on the road, dude, man. You know, but you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. emotionally or psychologically, you know, you give birth to these projects and you want them to live. And if they don't sell, they're effectively stillborn. Yeah. And it's like you're mourning like a child. And I think mm-hmm. in life... um, I've learned to, no, I can't say I've learned or like I've mastered it. It still fucking hurts. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it takes weeks and I don't want to get out of bed because there, you know, I've failed at something that I really wanted to go through. But I think having the resilience, going back to trusting your own instincts and embracing the fact that not everything you throw against the wall is going to stick. And you might throw a shit ton of resources at something that you really think is going to go forward and um and it dies yeah or you might throw a tiny bit of resources at something and it may sing and turn into the simpsons and you you try you try you you try everything that puts that that lands in front of you and you have all these ideas of how things are going to pan out and from my experience almost nothing has ever panned out from my expectations (laughs) here fucking here almost everything is like something that i didn't really realize was going to be the thing and then like oh that's the thing that's not what i tried i tried to do this other stuff but you know you touched on this in your when we were when we were interviewing you in podcast number one or 100 there's been so many now that yeah that was something that you were touching on was that you were talking about like if you know if there's any students listening to this podcast that um it's okay for your path to take a mind of its own yeah like it's totally okay for like, I don't see many other paths out there. Honestly, it's very, very rare that, that I, that I find someone who was like, it's almost like the people that I'm jealous of. I'm like, I want to say to them, like, Oh, how did you make this happen? And they were like, Oh, I I never wanted this to happen. (laughs) You know what I mean? I feel like some of the most successful people actually have that same. They'll be like, Oh, I've, I've always wanted to be a, a a novelist. And I'm like, well, fuck, go write a novel and let me direct the fucking feature. But I get it. Like, you know, you, the, the, this thing happened, that thing happened. Um, 
So before we go, because I feel like we're running out of time, but I have a question and I feel like this is something that uh, is always important when we're talking to people that are, are different always important when we're talking to people that are uh, professionals, but even more specifically for a producer, because like I said, I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of mystery behind what an animation producer actually is. Oh yeah. We never got to that. Did we? That's okay. Sorry. We're going to get to it now. (laughs) What does, if you can walk me through, the day of a producer. And I know that every day's a little different, yeah. but I just, just to help aspiring filmmakers to understand what does it look like you're producing? I think it's, you know, the first thing in the morning is like, how many Tylenol did I take yesterday? Uh-huh. Should I just shoulder this hangover mm-hmm. or should I take some? Go to ex- Advil. You go, I know exactly. yeah, you go back or and forth. You cycle through and right. get some like sodium naproxen, which uh-huh. is in, you know, a leaf. Um, I'm half kidding. You know, it just depends on the end game because, mm-hmm. You know, when, when you and I, or, uh, and I cheat on you sometimes with other directors, yeah. right? It's like when we're putting feature films together, mm-hmm. it's, my role is, is, is a little bit different, um, versus, you know, putting a TV show together, it's like a little bit different as a producer versus doing commercials, right? Cause commercials are a lot more about line producing yeah. where I have to be but let's super not, organized. Let's ignore the line producing for a second. Let's Good. talk about, I fucking hate line producing. Let's oh, talk oh, about oh. your, a day because I I think yeah. I know some of your days. Yeah. Um. You you've got a front row seat. You are uh, you know you're working on the things that are in front of you right now, and then something else crosses your path. Mm-hmm. Think of an example like that and just walk us through it. This date is so dry, <laughs> and I don't mean this date, you and I, buddy. No, he's I eating mean, a that date. Fucking date is. He th- he thought my question was longer. He thought he had time to eat an entire piece of fruit. Do you know how gross a dry date is? No, not, I'm not a big date guy. I think they're like they're like Jesus's candy. You know, like when Jesus yeah, was walking around in sandals and shit. But I like candy, candy. I like I like like artificial candy. Yeah. I'm not really a fan. I'm, I, I'll I feel eat. sophisticated. Actually, you know, I, I like cherries. That's not, I, I, I'm, I'm into cherries. Oh yeah. But Jesus like, is other candy. Yeah. 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 But yeah. I'm not, I don't know. The dates are, dates are it's like, they're like a mushy texture and they're sweet and uh, I don't know. It's yeah. not my thing. Well, the, um, if you look at any budget, there's, um, above the line and below the line for fucking film or animation. And above the line uh, are your decision makers, your producer, your director, your writer, and your talent, right? Your your actors. Um, and, and your composer will be thrown in there, too. And that's my world, is everything that's above the line. So mm-hmm. when I get out of bed in the morning, I think to myself, I need to uh, put a project together, whether it's television or film. The fuck was that? I need to put a project together, whether it's television or film, but I can't do that by myself. I need to flesh out the above the line. So I need a director to steer the ship. I need a, um, a writer to, uh, inject literature into the script. And I do have to say that like, and you're awesome in working with you on this. A lot of some directors I've worked with in the past because they're directors and because they're in charge and everyone is kissing their ass, they forget that they're not literary masters. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And it's like my role is a, this is why I like working with, with, with more higher end directors because they, and uh, they know the value of hiring a fucking writer instead of them have being egotistical and being like, I need to write everything. I'm going to write this and then I'm going to compose it on my toilet. And I'm, do you know what right, I'm saying? Like right. it's, uh, which I think is a tough thing. Well, cause when we're talking about the indie, thing i think a lot of us that are in that world got into this because we have dreams of making everything yeah and oh, i think it's only with to expressing yourself yeah. and wanting to express what's inside and you. i think it's only with time Body that hole. we start to see how uh uh you know wait i can have skill sets lie yeah or even like i can have input on this section say the the screenplay without writing the screenplay. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It goes back to governing dynamics. Yeah. Right. It goes back to how much influence from the outside, the, the unspoken subcurrent of influence that you have over a project. And that as a producer say, um, um, so there's a buddy of mine. We were both 
assistants together in Hollywood. He's now the vice president of New Line Cinema. So um, if I call him right now and I say, hey, um, I got an idea. He'll be like, okay, I'm too busy. Right. Then I say, hey, I got an idea. And I got Rob Shaw attached to direct. Suddenly he's like, ooh, really? And I say, yeah, but get this. I got, uh, I'm just going to pull some. I got Clive Barker who's writing it. He's like, wait, what the fuck? I'm like, yeah, but get this. I got Angelina Jolie doing the voice. Suddenly, me just suddenly, me as a producer, just mm-hmm. being like, I got an idea. Yeah. Suddenly, there are, there's credibility lent to the project and there, um, is expertise divided mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. among the experts. So once you put all those little pieces together, it becomes something interesting. It suddenly becomes worth somebody's time. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So that's what I'm constantly thinking about. And I think that there, there's and a then, smaller scale version of that. And then they can listen to too. the idea. Right. Exactly. Until then they can't hear the idea because and, the idea is, is, uh, is a, uh, is connected to a giant question mark. So how that idea has become something doesn't right. matter to the but, executive. But they look at it like, you know, in that respect, the producer is the is the carpet trader. I'm the guy going, step right up, get your carpets. I ain't making the fucking carpet. I'm not. I'm not designing the carpet. Um, but you, as a director, suddenly the VP from New Line Cinema is like. I've seen Rob's stuff. He's that street kid from Philly. I'm like, damn right. He's that street kid from fucking Philly. So imagine that tone being applied to a horror movie, you know, written by Clive sure. Barker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you've got a, a female in distress with Angelina Jolie. Mm-hmm. So that's constantly what I'm thinking about, because in my experience, putting a film together, whether it's a really tiny film or a really big film, is building your above the line team first and foremost, mm-hmm. because I'm as many screenplays as I've read in my lifetime. Um, I'm not a director and I'm not a screenwriter. So every project I put together, I try to package in that way. And we've talked about this before in meetings with the stuff that we've sold mm-hmm. and maybe on this podcast is that we're not doing this with our own money. Every time you make a film or a TV show, you know, uh, either Hollywood or some investor is investing um, in your project. But here's the lie. They're not investing in your project. They're investing in the fucking people who are running the project. Sure. So it's like, uh, so that's really my day to day is like going through and making sure that I understand what your goals are, or I understand what other like high end individuals that I work with, understanding what, what everybody's goals are. Do you know what I'm saying? Because then suddenly I can run parallel to those goals and be like, Oh, you know, Rob really wants to do a horror picture or, Rob really wants to do a lesbian coming of age TV uh-huh. story. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? Which, I want to do a, which by the way is in the works. Um, I want to do a stop motion, uh, limited series, uh, watership down. Can we do that? I know that they just did a watership down, but I feel like now the rights are probably back in the ether. Yeah. Can we do that? Let's get the rights, and then we'll wait seven years for the zeitgeist to to disappear, and then we'll come, we'll jump back out on the scene. I, I, yeah, I feel like Should the zeitgeist is going to go faster. Well, they that. did it with the Hulk movies, right? Yeah, the fucking Hulk came out. It was Edward Norton, and then suddenly Hulk is like, "There's been nine other films." I feel like, like you do it regionally too. Like if something happens in in Britain, and then you do it in the states, or something happens in right. Canada, and then they do it in Australia, but, it's a different but thing see, already. But that's the interesting. How thing? many it's fucking like, Sherlock's came out the year that the fucking BBC did Sherlock? Like with all that guy, not Guy Fieri, but yeah, guy, guy, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> not, like guy, and not, God, I wish Guy Fieri did, and not Sherlock. Guy Madden. No, oh no, man, no. I would love if Guy, like I would guy love Madden. if Guy Madden did Sherlock. Fucking, that would be amazing. amazing dude. Well, and then as long as Guy Fieri got to do the the sequel, yeah, yeah. Like, or he welcome was to Flavor Town, mate. Well, but or what's his name? You know, the, yeah, the Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels guy, Guy, Guy Fieri. That's yeah, that is Guy Fieri. Oh my God. We have our next uh, victim coming through the door. We are recording two uh, uh, two episodes today, back to back. Um, Come on in, Sue. But yeah, exactly. But you saying you want to work on Watership Down means that when I'm talking to a literary manager and just shooting the shit, we're talking about how long over we are, and then you know this person may or may not mention that. Oh yeah, I just you know met with the rights holder of Watership Down. I can suddenly be like, oh. Fuck, I was just talking about, you know, I was talking right, to right, Rob right. about that. Which so, goes back to your pieces part, which is like. Is, but the pieces are people. Like, right. the pieces are understanding what what my colleagues' goals are. Because my goal is very simple. 
I am horribly sociopathic in that I want to set up and get into production and get audiences to watch um, animated TV or animated film that I produce. Super, super simple, but I can't do any of that fucking shit on my own. So right. I'm constantly. And neither can any base. of us, which is also and the benefit. Really like, yeah, one yeah, of the, one of the things I would say to people that are creative people out there who maybe think they don't need a producer is, uh, is that like, to go fuck themselves. Yeah, go fuck. No, okay. but, but yeah, but just like, uh, you know, there's, I've seen that level of arrogance out there. And I think that, 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 um, you know, everyone involved, everyone who's serious about doing this stuff at all understands that, um, you need, nobody can do it by themselves. You need people. Yeah. And, um, and, if you can do it by yourself, that's great. Just keep doing it by yourself. That's fine. Yeah, but don't you personally as a director, <laughs> if you can put your attention towards telling the best story you can or or pulling out the most emotion you can, and again, going back to like the grip, grip tr truck analogy, it's a better use of your time to put your energy into uh, gently or aggressively or whatever your method is of getting a performance out yeah. and not worried about fuck are we going to make payroll this also week? everyone around me is less miserable if i have someone do that stuff because one i'm not good at it and two i'll forget half the shit you know right, like you'll right, right, i'll right. go to a shoot and i won't bring any heaters yeah. and i won't think about it and then everyone's freezing yeah and you know why that's not a good thing for me or for the project or no, for exactly. anybody exactly and i and i think it's really you know interesting because uh it's self-explanatory what the fuck a writer does or what an animator does or I mean a director that term is still like somewhat nebulous but but the role of producer is the most nebulous it is a ghost in the machine and it's just like the government you don't want them around until you need them around yeah do you know what I'm saying Trevor the tax man yeah exactly it's like you stay out of my fucking Medicare or whatever right. but, but now then, I'm, but I'm losing my leg but as soon as you lose your leg you're like where the fuck is he so yeah so exactly. So I'm doing my role as a producer when I'm not around, uh, things are fine. If you see the producer, you know, shit has gone, shit has gone wrong <laughs> because most of my job is pre-production. Anyway, yeah. most of my job is putting these pieces together and trying to match the creative with the money. That's it. End of story. You build up the creative. You can, so to the point where you can communicate your idea and then you pitch it to the people, um, who are buying it. And here's another big in unlock in my career. Um, and it sounds very simple, but you asked me what, what my typical day is as a producer. You might want to repeat that line because I just fucking oh, yeah. sneezed out okay. your shit. Um, you sneeze in the one of those hummus is very spicy, by the yeah. way. I don't remember which one. Um, is that imagine when you wake up in the morning? Oh, hey, there's Jeff. Here we got um, multiple people rolling in that there are people who wake up in the morning and their fucking job is to buy animated projects, which is insane. Like, isn't that crazy? So it's like, it's not witchcraft. It's not magic to sell an animated film or animated TV. There are people whose fucking job it is. They will lose their job if they don't find something cool to buy for their company. Right. So it's like that market completely exists. So it's not witchcraft. Um, it's not a mystery like breaking into the industry. It's just a matter of, um, from a bird's eye view, trying to figure out how all those pieces fit together. Like it's a possibility. So whoever's listening, maybe nobody's fucking listening. Maybe my, you know, maybe my dad's listening, mm -hmm. but, um, anybody with a film idea, um, if you spend enough time kind of studying the business and seeing how the parts work, you can get to that point where somebody's job is to buy your fucking project. You can, but if you're someone like me, it works out a lot better to hook up with someone like Trevor who can maybe help you figure that out. Exactly. And that's what producers do is we move up and down the supply chain. We know who is in the marketplace. We try to know. We try to gather business intel um, about what studio is kind of interested in buying what. Um, and that's really what my role is, is trying to understand the schematic or the blueprint of what's happening in the animation industry and then plugging projects into where, where I think. Uh, the what I think the markets kind of want at that time. That sounds sterile and terrible. No, it's fine. But it's, but it's true. And it's, sterile, it sounds less terrible. sterile and terrible when you have a thing that you want to make. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which we have lots of things. We have lots make. of things. Um, so, okay. Uh, I appreciate you grilling me. Um, and speaking of grilling, I am so fucking hot. Like, I'm going to stick my face in that hummus. It's so fucking I think we'll take five me. minutes and let the air conditioning be yeah. on. I'm going to go climb into the <laughs> pool back there with my pig and yeah. like cool off for fun. That's minutes. a good idea. Yeah. Dude, Rob, thank you for grilling me, dude. This was Hey, fun. thanks this for... Thanks. Maybe this will be our most highest rated show. 
Yeah. Hey, uh, also, I just wanted to call out that we may or may not have some music that played us in that played us out. Oh yeah. Uh, that is, uh, I haven't asked permission yet, so yeah. we'll see, but likely it's going to be, uh, my buddy Ralph Darden, who, uh, is the man behind, uh, the high Elias Avance. And, uh, also he's uh, DJ major Taylor in Chicago plays all over the place. You should go see him. Um, and he's uh, a good friend, good enough that I'm just assuming he's going to allow me to, uh, to play this highlight song. <laughs> and if that doesn't work, I'll just find some free shit online. No, no, I'm kidding. All right. All right. Thanks guys. See you next week. What's the-